Hello. Before we begin, a quick note. The Boy to Sleep podcast relies on you and sponsors, which means you will hear a quick advertisement before the beginning of tonight's episode. While the podcast is free, you are welcome to subscribe for just $2.99 per month, which supports the creation of this podcast and gives you an ad-free listening experience. Simply click the link in the show notes from your podcast app. Rest easy. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from Philosophy by Ralph Waldo Emerson. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everybody who shared their words of gratitude with me during the week whether it be through the website or their podcast app. One of the most rewarding aspects of this podcast is hearing from all of the listeners who found it beneficial in getting a good night's rest. Firstly, a huge thank you to all of the new subscribers and listeners of the Boy to Sleep podcast. And of course, thank you to all existing subscribers and Patreon sponsors. Thank you to the listeners who reached out via the website. Chantal, thank you so much for your lovely message. I'm honoured to have such a positive impact on your sleep. Thank you also to Stacy for your kind message. It seems you're new to the podcast, which means you have plenty of episodes to get through. Thank you to all of the Spotify listeners who took the time to leave a response in the episode Q&A. Most recently, thank you to Malu, Leon Wowsers, and Dimitri. And thank you to early listener Omerta for your lovely comment on the CastBox app. My goal is to keep this podcast free to allow access for everyone and it's the support from listeners via Patreon and Spotify that allows me to keep bringing out episodes for those who need them. If you find the podcast beneficial, there are a few ways you can support the creation of the podcast. For $2.99 per month, you can become a subscriber 
and also ensure that you remove any Spotify ads at the beginning of the episode. You don't need Spotify. You can follow the link in your podcast app and it will direct you on how to do this. If that is not possible, and I completely understand that it is not achievable for everybody, an easy way to support the podcast is by subscribing and leaving a review and rating in your podcast app. I always love hearing from listeners, whether the feedback is positive or constructive. A fantastic way to reach out is to say hello at boytosleep.com. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the ratings. Compensation by Ralph Waldo Emerson Ever since I was a boy, I have wished to write a discourse on compensation, for it had seemed to me when very young that on this subject life was ahead of theology and the people knew more than the preachers taught. The documents too, from which the doctrine is to be drawn, charmed my fancy by their endless variety and lay always before me, even in sleep, for they are the tools in our hands, the bread in our baskets, the transactions on the street, the farm and the dwelling house, the greetings, the relations, the debts and credits, the influence of character, the nature and endowment of all men. It seemed to me also that in it might be shown men a ray of divinity, the present action of the soul of this world, clean from all vestige and tradition, and so the heart of man might be bathed by an inundation of eternal love, conversing with that which he knows was always and always must be, because it really is now. It appeared, moreover, that if this doctrine could be stated in terms with any resemblance to those bright intuitions in which this truth is sometimes revealed to us, it would be a star in many dark hours and crooked passages in our journey and would not suffer us to lose our way. I was lately confirmed in these desires by hearing a sermon at church. The preacher, a man esteemed for his orthodoxy, unfolded in the ordinary manner the doctrine of the last judgment. He assumed that judgment is not executed in this world, that the wicked are successful, that the good are miserable, and then urged from reason and from scripture a compensation to be made to both parties in the next life. No offence appeared to be taken by the congregation of this doctrine. As far as I could observe, when the meeting broke up, they separated without remark on the sermon. Yet, what was the import of this teaching? 
What did the preacher men by saying that the good are miserable in the present life? Was it that houses and lands, offices, wine, horses, dress, luxury are had by unprincipled men, whilst the saints are poor and despised, and that a compensation is to be made to these last hereafter, by giving them the like gratifications another day, bank stock and doubloons, venison and champagne. This must be the compensation intended for what else? Is it that they are to have leave to pray and praise, to love and serve men? Why that they can do now? The legitimate inference the disciple would draw was, we are to have such a good time as the sinners have now, or to push it to its extreme import. You sin now, we shall sin by and by. We would sin now if we could. Not being successful, we expect our revenge tomorrow. The fallacy lay in the immense concession that the bad are successful, that justice is not done now. The blindness of the preacher consisted in deferring to the base estimate of the market of what constitutes a manly success, instead of confronting and convicting the world from the truth, announcing the presence of the soul, the omnipotence of the will, and so establishing the standard of good and ill, of success and falsehood, and summoning the dead to its present tribunal. I find a similar base tone in the popular religious works of the day, and the same doctrines assumed by the literary men when occasionally they treat the related topics. I think that our popular theology has gained in decorum and not in principle over the superstitions it has displaced. But men are better than this theology. Their daily life gives it the lie. Every ingenious and aspiring soul leaves the doctrine behind him in his own experience. And all men feel sometimes the falsehood which they cannot demonstrate. For men are wiser than they know. That which they hear in schools and pulpits without afterthought, if said in conversation, would probably be questioned in silence. If a man dogmatise in a mixed company of providence and the divine laws, he is answered by a silence which conveys well enough to an observer the dissatisfaction of the hearer, but his incapacity to make his own statement. I shall attempt in this and the following chapter to record some facts that indicate the path of the law of compensation. Happy beyond my expectation if I shall truly draw the smallest arc of this circle. Polarity or action and reaction. We meet in every part of nature, in darkness and light, in heat and cold, 
in the ebb and flow of waters, in male and female, in the inspiration and expiration of plants and animals, in the systole and diastole of the heart, in the indolations of fluids and of sound, in the centrifugal and centripetal gravity, in electricity, galvanism, chemical affinity, superinduced magnetism at one end of a needle, the opposite magnetism takes place at the other end. If the south attracts, the north repels. To empty here, you must condense there. An inevitable dualism bisects nature, so that each thing is a half, and suggests another thing to make it a whole, as spirit, matter, man, woman, subjective, objective, in, out, upper, under, motion, rest, yea, nay. Whilst the world is thus dual, so is every one of its parts, the entire system of things gets represented in every particle. There is somewhat that resembles the ebb and flow of the sea, day and night, man and woman, in a single needle of the pine, in a kernel of corn, in each individual of every animal tribe. The reaction so grand in the elements is repeated within these small boundaries. For example, in the animal kingdom, the physiologist has observed that no creatures are favourites, but a certain compensation balances every gift and every defect. A surplusage given to one part is paid out of a reduction from another part of the same creature. If the head and neck are enlarged, the trunk and extremities are cut short. The theory of the mechanic forces is another example. What we gain in power is lost in time, and the converse. The periodic or compensating errors of the planets is another instance. The influences of climate and soil in political history are another. The cold climate invigorates. The barren soil does not breed fevers, crocodiles, tigers or scorpions. The same dualism underlies the nature and condition of man. Every excess causes a defect. Every defect an excess. Every sweet hath is sour. Every evil it's good. Every faculty which is a receiver of pleasure has an equal penalty put on its abuse. It is to answer for its moderation with its life. For every grain of wit there is a grain of folly. For everything you have missed, you have gained something else. And for everything you gain, you lose something. If riches increase, they are increased that use them. 
if the gatherer gathers too much. Nature takes out of the man what she puts into his chest, swells the estate, but kills the owner. Nature hates monopolies and exceptions. The waves of the sea do not more speedily seek a level from their loftiest tossing than the varieties of condition tend to equalise themselves. There is always some levelling circumstance that puts down the overbearing, the strong, the rich, the fortunate, substantially on the same ground with all others. Is a man too strong and fierce for society, and by temper and position a bad citizen, a morose ruffian with a dash of the pirate in him, Nature sends him a troop of pretty sons and daughters who are getting along in the dame's classes at the village school and love and fear for them smooths his grim scowl to curtsy. Thus she contrives to intenerate the granite and feldspar, takes the boar out and puts the lamb in and keeps her balance true. The farmer imagines power and place are fine things, but the president has paid dear for his White House. It has commonly cost him all his peace, and the best of his manly attributes. To preserve for a short time so conspicuous an appearance before the world, he is content to eat dust before the real masters who stand erect behind the throne. Or do men desire the more substantial and permanent grandeur of genius? Neither has this an immunity. He who by force of will or of thought is great and overlooks thousands has the responsibility of overlooking. With every influx of light comes new danger. Has he light? He must bear witness to the light, and always outrun the sympathy which gives him such keen satisfaction. By his fidelity to new revelations of the incessant soul, he must hate father and mother, wife and child. Has he all that the world loves and admires and covets? He must cast behind him their admiration and afflict them by faithfulness to his truth and become a byword and a hissing. This law writes the laws of cities and nations. It will not be balked of its end in the smallest iota. It is in vain to build or plot or combine against it. Things refuse to be mismanaged long. Though no checks to a new evil appear, the checks exist and will reappear. If the government is cruel, the governor's life is not safe. If you tax too high, the revenue will yield nothing. If you make the criminal code sanguinary, juries will not convict. Nothing arbitrary, nothing artificial can endure. The true life and satisfactions of man seem to elude the utmost rigours or felicities of condition, 
and to establish themselves with great indifferency under all varieties of circumstance. Under all governments, the influence of character remains the same, in Turkey and New England about alike. Under the primeval despots of Egypt, history honestly confesses that man must have been as free as culture could make him. These appearances indicate the fact that the universe is represented in every one of its particles. Everything in nature contains all the powers of nature. Everything is made of one hidden stuff, as the naturalist sees one type under every metamorphosis, and regards a horse as a running man, a fish as a swimming man, a bird as a flying man, a tree as a rooted man. Each new form repeats not only the main character of the type, but part of part all the details, all the aims, furtherances, hindrances, energies, and whole system of every other. Every occupation, trade, art, transaction is a compend of the world and a correlative of every other. Each one is an entire emblem of human life, of its good and ill, its trials, its enemies, its course and its end. The world globes itself in a drop of dew. The microscope cannot find the animalcule, which is less perfect for being little. Eyes, ears, taste, smell, motion, resistance, appetite and organs of reproduction that take hold on eternity all find room to consist in the small creature. So do we put our life into every act. The true doctrine of omnipresence is that God reappears with all his parts in every moss and cobweb. The value of the universe contrives to throw itself into every point. If the good is there, so is the evil. If the affinity so the repulsion, if the force, so the limitation. Thus is the universe alive. All things are moral, that soul which within us is a sentiment, outside of us is a law. We feel its inspirations out there in history. We can see its fatal strength. It is almighty. All nature feels its grasp. It is in the world, and the world was made by it. It is eternal, but it enacts itself in time and space. Justice is not postponed. A perfect equity adjusts its balance in all parts of life. The dice of God are always ready to fall. The dice of God are always loaded. The world looks like a multiplication table or a mathematical equation which, turn it how you will, balances itself. Take what figure you will, its exact value, nor more nor less, 
still returns to you. Every secret is told, every crime is punished, every virtue rewarded, every wrong redressed in silence and certainty. What we call retribution is the universal necessity by which the whole appears wherever a part appears. If you see smoke, there must be fire. If you see a hand or a limb, you know that the trunk to which it belongs is there behind. Every act rewards itself, or in other words, integrates itself, in a twofold manner. First in the thing, or in real nature, and secondly in the circumstance, or in apparent nature. Men call the circumstance the retribution. The casual retribution is in the thing and is seen by the soul. The retribution in the circumstance is seen by the understanding. It is inseparable from the thing, but is often spread over a long time and so does not become distinct until after many years. The specific stripes may follow late after the offence, but they follow because they accompany it. Crime and punishment grow out of one stem. Whilst thus the world will be whole and refuses to be disparted, we seek to act partially to sunder, to appropriate, for example... To gratify the senses, we sever the pleasure of the senses from the needs of the character. The ingenuity of man has been dedicated to the solution of one problem. How to detach the sensual sweet, the sensual strong, the sensual bride, etc. from the moral sweet, the moral deep, the moral fair, that is, again to contrive to cut clean off this upper surface so thin as to leave it bottomless, to get a one end without another end. The soul says, eat, the body would feast. The soul says, the man and woman shall be one flesh and one soul. The body would join the flesh only, the soul says, have dominion over all things to the ends of virtue. The body would have the power over things to its own ends. The soul strives amain to live and work through all things. It would be the only fact. All things shall be added unto it. Power, pleasure, knowledge, beauty. The particular man aims to be somebody, to set up for himself, to truck and higgle for a private good, and in particulars to ride that he may ride, to dress that he may be dressed, to eat that he may eat, and to govern that he may be seen. Men seek to be great, they would have offices, wealth, power and fame. They think that it is to be great is to get only one side of nature, the sweet without the other side, the bitter. 
steadily as this dividing and detaching counteracted. Up to this day, it must be owned no projector has had the smallest success. The parted water reunites behind our hand. Pleasure is taken out of pleasant things, profit out of profitable things, power out of strong things. The moment we seek to separate them from the whole, we can no more halve things and get sensual good by itself than we can get an inside that shall have no outside, or a light without a shadow. Drive out nature with a fork, she comes running back. Life invests itself with inevitable conditions, which the unwise seek to dodge, which one and another brags that he does not know, brags that they do not touch him, but the brag is on his lips, the conditions are on his soul. If he escapes them in one part, they attack him in another, more vital part. If he has escaped them in form and in the appearance, it is because he has resisted his life and fled from himself, and the retribution is so much death. So signal is the failure of all attempts to make this separation of the good from the tax, that the experiment would not be tried, since to try it is to be mad, but for the circumstance that when the disease began in the will of rebellion and separation, the intellect is at once infected so that the man ceases to see God whole in each object, but is able to see the sensual allurement of an object, and does not the sensual hurt. He sees the mermaid's head, but not the dragon's tail, and thinks he can cut off that which he would have from that which he would not have. How secret art thou, who dwellest in the highest heavens in silence, O thou only great God, sprinkling with an unwearied providence certain penal blindnesses upon such as unbridled desires. The human soul is true to the facts in the painting of fable, of history, of law, of proverbs, of conversation, it finds a tongue in literature unawares. Thus the Greeks called Jupiter supreme mind, but having traditionally ascribed to him many base actions, they involuntarily made amends to reason by tying up the hands of so bad a god. He is made as helpless as a king of England, Prometheus knows one secret which Jove must bargain for, Minerva another. He cannot get his own thunders. Minerva keeps the key of them. A plain confession of the in-working of the all and of all its moral aim. The Indian mythology ends in the same ethics, and indeed it would seem impossible for any fable to be invented, and get any currency which was not moral. 
Aurora forgot to ask youth for her lover, and though so Tithonus is immortal, he is old. Achilles is not quite invulnerable, for Thetis held him by the heel when she dipped him in the stikes, and the sacred waters did not wash that part. Siegfried in the Nibelungen is not quite immortal, for a leaf fell on his back whilst he was bathing in the dragon's blood, and that spot which is covered is mortal. And so it always is. There is a crack in everything God has made. Always it would seem there is the vindictive circumstance stealing it unawares even in the wild posy in which the human fancy attempted to make bold holiday and to shake itself free of the old laws. This backstroke, this kick of the gun, certifying that the law is fatal, that in nature nothing can be given, all things are sold. This is the ancient doctrine of Nemesis, who keeps watch in the universe and lets no offence go unchastised. The Furies, they said, are attendants on justice, and if the sun in heaven should transgress his path, they would punish him. The poets related that stone walls and iron swords and leathern thongs had an occult sympathy with the wrongs of their owners, that the belt which Ajax gave Hector dragged the Trojan hero over the field at the wheels of the car of Achilles, and the sword which Hector gave Ajax was that on whose point Ajax fell. They recorded that when the Thasians erected a statue to Theogens, a victor in the games, one of his rivals, went to it by night and endeavoured to throw it down by repeated blows, until at last he moved it from its pedestal and was crushed to death beneath its fall. This voice of fable has in it somewhat divine. It came from thought above the will of the rider. That is the best part of each rider, which has nothing private in it. That is the best part of each, which he does not know. That which flowed out of his constitution, and not from his too active invention. That which, in the study of a single artist, you might not easily find. We are to see that which man was tending to do in a given period, and was hindered, or if you will, modified in doing, by the interfering volitions of Phidus, of Dante, of Shakespeare, the organ whereby man at the moment wrought. Still more striking is the expression of this fact in the proverbs of all nations, which are always the literature of reason, or the statements of an absolute truth without qualification. Proverbs, like the sacred books of each nation, are the sanctuary of the intuitions, that which, droning worlds, chained to appearances, will not allow the realist to say its own words.
it will suffer him to say in Proverbs without contradiction, and this law of laws, which the pulpit, the senate, and the college deny, is hourly preached in all markets and all languages by flights of Proverbs, whose teaching is as true, as omnipresent, as the birds of flies. All things are double, one against another, tit for tat, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, blood for blood, measure for measure, love for love, give and it shall be given you. He that watereth shall be watered himself. What will you have, quoth God? Pay for it and take it. Nothing venture, nothing have. Thou shalt be paid exactly for what thou hast done, no more, no less. Who doth not work shall not eat. Harm watch, harm catch. Curses always recoil on the head of him who imprecates them. Our action is overmastered and characterized above our will by the law of nature. We aim at a petty end quite aside from the public good, but our act arranges itself by irresistible magnetism in a line with the poles of the world. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this story. If you're not quite tired yet, please feel free to listen to another episode of the Boy to Sleep podcast. Until next time, and good night.